So we back up a little bit. I want to catch us up. I want to review. It's always good. Uh, Linda's got a bulletin. There is a lot of blank space. I didn't put an outline in there. Um, sometimes we have to choose. I, lots of blank space. There's an outline up here or some at least some notes you can follow. I'm going to stand down here this morning. Someone said I was in the way last week. We'll try it and see how it works. Hmm? I don't take it personally, no. Not at all. Um, so we began First Peter, I want to review, we began First Peter um, with two main ideas, really. There's two things that he was talking about. Number one, he's writing to some people who are scattered aliens, right? Things are uncomfortable, they don't belong, like this tie doesn't belong, right? That's the reminder. And, and by the way, this, this is the other tie that you can't have. All the rest of them you can. This is the tie that I wore when uh, Ben and I left the church when we got married 19 years ago Tuesday. Um, so that's, uh, this is the other one you can't have. Nice, isn't it, right? She had a dress that, that went along with this, if I remember right, many moons ago. So they were scattered aliens, they don't belong, and they're undergoing difficulties, undergoing trials. And in that, and in that process, in the midst of that, he tells them that they're, that they're to obey and that they've been sprinkled by his blood. And so I want to give you a summary that we're going to come back to. I'm going to keep repeating this summary to help us get a glimpse of, and it's up on the overhead, I think. Yes, uh, this summary. Peter is writing to them to teach them, based on what God has done, how to live, where they don't belong, when they are facing difficulties. He's teaching them how to live based on what God has done, where they are, when they're facing difficulties. That's, that's the summary of, of, of 1 Peter. We're going to come back to that statement again and again. We can embed it in our mind. Everything he talks about fits in there in one way or another. And then he says, the response to that, that opening first three verses is, blessed be God. Our, our ultimate response is, we bless God. That really should be the heartbeat of our lives. Every day, every moment, regardless of what we're going through, does our life bless God? He has allowed us to be part of His story. He's written us into this wonderful story. We get to be a character, so to speak, in what He's doing in this world. What an opportunity, what a privilege that He's allowed us to be a part of what He's doing. And so that should, should elicit blessing from us to Him. And then very specifically, He says, we bless Him because He's caused us to be born again. In other words, He's giving us a chance by being reborn to live life the way it was supposed to be lived. See, we showed up in a corrupt world. We showed up with a corrupt heart. We showed up unable and unwilling to live life the way that God has designed it to be lived. We were unable and we were unwilling and He has caused us through Christ to be born again. And now we have an opportunity to live life the way it's supposed to be lived. And that should elicit blessing and praise and glory to our Heavenly Father. 
Sometimes we just need to sit back and, and let that wash over us. We have an opportunity to live life the way it's supposed to be lived when before we didn't and we wouldn't. That, that salvation we talked about, remember, it has a, a future aspect. It's, it's imperishable and undefiled and it will not fade away. In other words, it's secure. It's got a present aspect. When we rejoice in it today, it benefits us and allows us to overcome the trials that we face. And then it's got a past aspect. He said that people throughout history, the Old Testament saints and the New Testament apostles were willing to sacrifice for us that the message might be passed on. And then if others that weren't benefited in one sense by what Christ has done were willing to sacrifice that we might benefit, then a response we said to that was, are we willing to sacrifice for someone else? Are we willing to follow in that great line of the apostles and the prophets who are willing, and ultimately Christ Jesus, who are willing to sacrifice for us? And then he gave commands. We talked about last week, he gave two commands. Set your hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to you in Christ Jesus and be holy as God is holy. And we said that, that we're holy um, first as obedient children. And, and children, obedient children are obedient whether they understand or whether they want to. Now, a lot of times children don't understand and are not obedient, and sometimes children don't want to and are not obedient, but obedient children are obedient whether they understand and whether they want to or not. And that's, he says, that's how we should be holy. But he also said that we should be holy not conforming to our ignorance. In other words, you can't keep living like you did in your ignorance. Things have changed. You've been enlightened. You've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and understanding. You can't live like that anymore. And then he said, we do that in all of our conduct, not just part of our life. We don't, we don't say, okay, this is God's and I'll be holy here, but I really don't want him messing with my, and you fill in the blank, my money, my marriage, my kids, my business what I think about during the day, what I look at on the computer. I don't want him messing with those parts. I only want him messing with these parts. And I'll be holy here, here, and here, but not here. And Peter says, in all your conduct. And then he gives us, says, because it's written. And it's not just a suggestion. Over and over again, in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, we're called to be holy. God really wants us to do that. It's not a suggestion. It's not of well, if, if you get a chance, if you happen upon it, He really wants us to. And that brings us to this morning's passage beginning in 17. He gives us one more command. There's going to be another one next week, but He gives us one more we'll look at this week. And let me give you a, a summary of, of, of this passage, and we'll break it down kind of phrase by phrase. And I think it's all, it'll be up here as well. Because of who God is, knowing what you know, and we'll define what that is in a second. Because of who God is and knowing what you know, wherever you are and whatever you do, live your life in fear. And we'll break that down and talk about what that means, especially that word fear, because we, we 
we wrestle with that, I believe, in, in the Christian community. Because of who God is and knowing what you know, wherever you are and whatever you do, live your life in the fear of the Lord. So let's talk about that and break that down. He begins, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. So we begin talking about what does it mean that God's a judge? What does that impartially judges? What does that mean? Well, there's, there's two lines of thought, actually. Um, sometimes we wish Peter would, and all the writers would sometimes spell it out a little more for us. What do you mean by that? But there's two big thoughts. Number one, He's talking about the final judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 14 talks about that we believers will be judged according to our actions on this planet for reward and loss. And the New Testament writers don't really explain what that reward and loss looks like. It's one of those things I wish they would have. Can you just can you just tell me what that means? Do I get do I get to go you know, to those trees that are going to line that river that have fruit. Do I get to go more than you if I've been good? Right? Do, I, do I lose opportunities to, to take the leaves that are for the healing of the nations? What does that mean? Well, they don't tell us. But we have a, a judge, an impartial judge, that at the end we will stand before and he will judge our actions and there will be reward and there will be loss. And maybe that's what Peter is referring to here. And he says, because he's impartial, it really doesn't matter whether you get to call him father or not. He's still impartial. Just because you have this relationship in Christ doesn't mean that your actions aren't important. Right? Well, God's going to get everybody else, but I'm his favored son. Yeah, you are his favored son and daughter, but he's an impartial judge. The other thought is that, that Peter's talking about present discipline, like the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12. Uh, we're disciplined for our good. Fathers discipline children, and God disciplines us. That, it's, that our present actions, if they don't line up with what God wants, that He provides discipline for us to train us to righteousness. Either way, whatever side you lean on on that, the point is, our present actions are important. They matter. And just because we have this wonderful privilege of calling God Father, that doesn't mean that our actions don't matter. Now, we're not talking about salvation. If you have believed on the grace, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is secure. Peter talks about that, right? We can't forget the first 16 verses. Right, sometimes we, we read verses and take them out of context and go, oh, what, now what? Is my salvation in jeopardy? No, not if you have trusted completely in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. No. But God is serious that our actions do matter on this planet. And what we'll see is one of the main reasons they, they matter is because people are watching and He has a reputation and He would love for us as His children to uphold that reputation. Our actions matter. He is a judge. And so, if, if we call on Him as Father, and if we buy into what we talked about last week, that He's called us to be holy, 
and that we have the privilege of setting our hope really on grace, not anything else, because we will fall and grace allows us to get back up and go, you know what, I blew it, but he still loves me and today I can put another foot forward. And and that can be a motivation because you know what, I don't have to fear, I don't have to fear failure. I can try, I I can keep going, you know, I failed. I haven't overcome that tongue, I haven't overcome that anger, I haven't overcome that lust, I haven't overcome that laziness, I haven't overcome whatever it is. But He loves me and He's calling me to Himself and I can get up and put one foot in front of the other. But He wants me to get up and put another foot forward and then the next day to try again. So He says, if I do that, He says, conduct yourselves in fear. That word, conduct yourselves, Peter uses six or seven times in this letter. And it's a word that really means, um, kind of literally means to go back and forth. It's, It's the figure of speech of the day in and day out of life. It's what you do every day. It's, it's, we live in fear, and we'll talk about that in a second too. We live in fear when we're doing the laundry when we're doing our homework, when we're driving to work, when we're sitting in the office, when we're praying with our spouse, when we're sitting in church, when I'm mowing the yard, when I'm raking the leaves, when I'm watching ESPN. It's the day in and day out of life. It's it's nothing special. It's not those special moments. It's every moment, every day. That's what that word means. When you conduct your life, when you go in and out, I want you to do that in fear, he says. Mindful that our Father is an impartial judge. So what do we mean by in fear? Peter, over and over and over again, alludes to or quotes the Old Testament. So in fear, just a shorthand of, in the fear of the Lord, which is a phrase that's used over and over again in the Old Testament. So I want to remind you of some things we talked about when we studied Proverbs back in the fall. We talked about what fear of the Lord meant. And there's kind of two aspects to that word. One's a, we call a, a rational aspect. It's something that we can kind of grasp and make sense of and define. Psalm 19, uh, it's used in parallel with God's commands and His statutes. And so there's a quote that's actually a combination of, of uh, two different people. Um, a quote from a guy named Huybrey who was a conservative evangelical theologian in the mid-50s and a guy named Bruce Walkie. And this is a... I've, I've mishmashed two statements that they said together because they fit. Uh, the fear of the Lord, a standard of moral conduct that motivates people to right behavior even when a state does not enforce moral sanctions. That's a big technical definition. What that means is, next slide, Stuart, it's who you are when no one's looking and no one cares. The fear of the Lord, in very practical terms, is, if he says conduct your life in fear, that means you conduct your life as holy when no one's looking and when nobody cares, when there's no law against it. How are you going to behave when no one's watching and there's no way you're going to get in trouble because it's not against the rules? 
the society's rules or the culture's rules or the state's rules. The fear of the Lord motivates us to do the right thing when no one's looking and when nobody cares. That's kind of the rational aspect of what fear of the Lord means. But there's a a non-rational aspect to that. There's this, this emotional part of it that we think about and we, we get caught up between is it fear as in I'm scared he's going to zap me or this reverence idea of I take my hat off when I come in the building and say yes sir and no sir. But when we read the Old Testament, especially like the book of Deuteronomy, over and over the language that Moses uses to talk about that is often very similar when he talks about Fearing God and loving God. That he uses some of the same terminology and some of the same ideas when he talks about fearing God and loving God. Let me give you an example. Think about a a sailor back a long time ago that would get on a wooden ship and, and travel across the ocean. They would do that, and if you read journals and letters and stories, they would do that because there is this great love for the sea. They are drawn to the sea. I can't get enough of the smell of the salt. I can't get enough of the feel. I can't get enough of the vastness and the expanse and the wide openness and the freedom. They love the water. And yet you read those same people and they're scared to death of it. They fear it because they know that it's impartial. A storm can throw them overboard just as well as they can the captain. If they're the lowest person or the most important person on that ship, water can do them in. At the same time, there's this great love and this great fear for that vast expanse of ocean. That's sort of what the fear of the Lord means for us. We go through our life hungering and thirsting for the freedom of Christ and yet mindful that He is the creator of the universe. He's the one that when we stand before Him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When Isaiah was in his presence and and longed to be in his presence, he fell and said, Woe is me, for I am undone. When John, the one who walked with Jesus for three years day by day, Again, the same idea in Revelation. He was overwhelmed by the presence of God. That idea of of loving Him and fearing Him are so commingled together that it's hard to separate them. But it's not fear like, I'm scared of monsters. It's not fear like, I'm I'm fearful that the money's going to run out. But it's again, it's also not just reverence like you take your hat off when you walk in a building. It's so much more than that, this fear of the Lord. And Peter says, if we dress as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, go in and out of life, live your life in that excitement and drawing to this one who is so powerful that He can bring us to our knees. But He's also the one that can take us across the ocean to these unexplored regions and allow us to see beauty and majesty and wonder that we could never imagine. Are we excited to live life? 
Are we thrilled to live life knowing that not only do we get a chance to live it like we've never lived it before, but we're on the edge of death every moment. The heart that beats constantly, right? In a moment, God could say, your part in this play is over. And so do we live life to the fullest now? Because we don't know when that's going to happen. Because He is ultimately in control. That's what Peter's talking about. And we do that knowing, he says, that we've been redeemed. And it's not just that we've been redeemed. He explains that. He does a a masterful job of explaining that to, in that culture, both Jews and Gentiles with one word. Precious blood. But that word precious, he, the way he structures this argument, he explains that very clearly to both Jews and Gentiles. To a Gentile audience, they see the word redeemed. It's a very technical term. Uh, In that culture, especially in the Roman Empire, a slave could take some money, and that money was called a timae, and they could go to a temple, and if they accumulated this timae, they could give that to the temple, really to the deity. The temple would take their cut and then give the rest of it to the master, and that slave would be free in one sense, but now technically owned by whatever deity belonged to that temple. And so they would be redeemed by giving a teme to this deity. And now, even though you own me, I'm free to live my life. And Peter says, you have been redeemed not with perishable coins, not with teme, but with temeo, a play on words, precious blood. That Tim is going to rot, it's going to rust, you're going to lose it, it's going to roll under the table, you're not going to be able to find it. But you've been redeemed by precious blood. There's this one, there's this person who has redeemed you. To a Jewish audience, they, they understand blood. They understand precious blood. And he says... This precious blood is the same thing, or not the same thing, but very similar to that spotless lamb. And what was that spotless lamb to those people? Well, it was a sacrifice. It was was from the herd, either milk or meat, that because of my sin is a real, live, important sacrifice. And this precious blood was a sacrifice but not of a lamb, of a human being. Not of just a human being, but one who was fully God. We live the way we live because precious blood has been given to redeem us. To move us from slavery to freedom. To allow us to get on that boat that goes across the ocean to those vast expanses of wonder and amazement and glory and newness and excitement. And then He redeemed us, He says, from a, 
a useless or a fruitless or an empty life. Earlier, Peter had said that our former life was done in ignorance, and now he says, not only were you ignorant, but it has no value. It was useless. The way you lived, how you did, what, what went on, it was useless. It had no value. It was empty. And we were also redeemed from that life that was passed down from our ancestors. And if I was a Jew, I'd say, but wait a minute. Are you saying ultimately what, what Moses passed down is useless and fruitless and empty? And Peter would say, ultimately, compared to, to Jesus, yes. No matter how far back you can trace your family traditions and, and what your family taught you to do to help you to live life and how you function, no matter how far you can trace that back, we can trace Jesus back even farther. He was foreknown, the text says, before the foundation of the world. Uh, you want to know about an old tradition? Here's an old tradition. Before God said, let there be light, the redemption was planned. Before God separated the light from the darkness, before He separated the firmament from the water and the land, before He created animals and birds and fish, before He created Adam and Eve, the redemption was planned. It was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The traditions that are handed out from our ancestors are young compared to that. We just need to let that, like a wave, roll over us for a moment. And then what's even more amazing, he says, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. That plan that was instituted before the foundation of the world has led to you and has happened for you. That knowledge, the, the revealing of what was known from the beginning, we now get to glimpse, we now get to see, we now get to experience. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about in Hebrews where it talked about all those people that lived by faith. And we said... You read that again, actually. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. Not for them. For us. We take that as, as the church, but also... For, for you and I here in the 21st century in Cherokee County, North Carolina, all that long list of people in chapter 11 did what they did for us. That redemption that was planned before the foundation of the world has now appeared in these last times for us. Why? He says at the end, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Not so that we can run out and do what we want to because we're free. God did all that so that we would put our faith and our hope in Him. 
and that we would live day in and day out in that fearful excitement, that glory of being on the deck of a ship and you see the storm clouds coming and you go, this is going to be a ride. I don't know, some of you, you don't like water. Maybe that's a bad analogy, but but if you can put yourself in that sailor's shoes who's longed to be on the water all his life and now here comes the storm and looking forward to riding that out. what God has for us. He's placed us in this story and He wants us to live that story. To live where you are right now for His glory. Which ultimately is also for our good. When we live for His glory, ultimately it's for our good. And so as I said last week, will you live Will you accept that He has... However, he, and you may not like your character. You may wish that He had given you a different part to play. You may look around the room and you go, Man, I wish I had His part or her part. They've got a better part than I do. Well, God gave you the part He wanted you to give. And the question is, will you live it? Will you be the person He's called you to be? That's the challenge for all of us. Every moment, every day. Mowing the yard, doing the dishes, sitting in front of the TV, riding home today from church. The question is, will we live the life that God has called us to live? Let's pray together. And then maybe we'll sing a couple of songs. <laughs> okay. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your, your joy that you give us through your Son. I thank you that you have called us to be a part of the story that you have written that has been being crafted since the foundation of the world. And we today, 2014, on March 16th, get to live part of that story. Each of us today. God, help us to do that in a way that brings you honor and glory and praise. Because it is to you, God, that we owe all that we have and all that we are. Help us to be the people that you have called us to be, God. That we may live for you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.